You're listening to Calvin's Institutes, Lesson 5. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Well, let's begin, please. Having derived the triune nature of God from the Scripture, uh, Calvin uh, next turns to describe this God in two sections, God of providence, but first of all, a God of creation. God is Trinity. God is the God who created all things, and God is the God who preserves and governs all things. So we come today to Calvin's treatment of creation. Ford Lewis Battles has taken sections of the material that we read for today and arranged those writings of Calvin in what he calls a hymn to creation adapted from the Institutes. It's in the book, uh, The Piety of John Calvin by Dr. Battles, who's the translator of the edition of the Institutes that we're using. I'd like to use uh, part of that hymn to creation, which is really words from the Institutes, but uh, add some words to make it a prayer, and uh, we'll use that uh, for our prayer this morning. Let's pray. God has set all things for our good and for our salvation. In our very selves, we feel his power and grace, his great unnumbered benefits freely conferred upon us. All praise and thanks be unto God. What else can we then do but stir ourselves to trust, invoke, to praise and love him? For all God's handiwork is made for man. Even in the six days he shows a father's care for his child as yet unborn. All praise and thanks be unto God. Away in gratitude, forgetfulness of him. Away with craven fear he may fail us in our need. For he has seen to it that nothing will be lacking to our welfare. All praise and thanks be unto God. Whenever we call on God, creator of heaven and earth, we must be mindful that all he gives us is in his hand to give. Our every trust and hope, we hang on him alone. All praise and thanks be unto God. Whatever we desire, we are to ask of him and thankfully receive each benefit that falls to us. Let us then strive to love and serve him with all our hearts. All praise and thanks be unto God. Amen. I want to talk, uh, first of all, about uh, the place and significance of the doctrine of creation uh, in Calvin's uh, ordering and arrangement of the 1559 edition of the Institutes. You'll notice that Calvin moves from his treatment of the doctrine of God to creation and providence. What seems to be missing there, or at least could be put between the doctrine of God 
in the doctrine of creation. You think about the ordering of topics in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it'll give you a hint as to what the answer is. The what? The doctrine of man. Well, that will come in Calvin's treatment of uh, creation, and then it comes again in Book 2. But um, something even before the doctrine of man. Yes. God's decrees, yes. Calvin passes over God's decrees. You remember that uh, in Westminster Confession, it's Scripture, God, decree, creation, and providence. So the ordering is quite similar to Calvin's in the Confession, but uh, Calvin does not yet deal with the doctrine of God's decrees. In fact, he'll, he'll keep telling us through Book 1 and through Book 2 and even into book three. We could talk about this now, but we're not going to. He's putting it off, putting it off. And um, we'll see uh, later uh, why he puts it off so long. It's a little bit surprising because Calvin is usually viewed as the theologian of the decrees of God. And yet in his great systematic theology, uh, it doesn't come early. It comes much later in his treatment of theology. That doesn't mean that Calvin doesn't think it's important, but uh, he has a particular reason for putting it all. But uh, I won't, uh, I won't talk about that yet. I just alert you to the fact that you'll see these statements along the way, where Calvin does say we could talk about it now, but we won't. Creation, uh, Calvin says, is not the chief evidence for faith but it is the first evidence in the order of nature to be mindful that wherever we cast our eyes, all things that meet are works of God. I think what he's saying here is that the doctrine of creation is not the chief evidence for faith. In other words, this is not the most important thing you need to know in order to be saved, how God created the heavens and the earth. So this is not a soteriological order that he's talking about here. The doctrine of creation doesn't come first in that sense. But in a kind of logical sense, it does. Because as soon as we think of God, God the triune God, then logically we think of the God who created all things. We might say, well, logically, we think of the God who decreed all things, and I think Calvin would admit that, but he's going to postpone his treatment of the doctrine of the decrees until later, as I said. But uh, Calvin wants to turn to the doctrine of creation now to fill out what we know from Scripture about God the Creator, which is the topic of Book 1. And remember, when he talks about God the Creator, it's not just the Father. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is the Creator. The triune God is the Creator. Let me mention some characteristics of Calvin's treatment of this doctrine. And these are points that we have come to expect from Calvin now, practical and personal. He wants his 
treatment of the doctrine of creation to be very practical and to be very personal. The object of Scripture, he tells us, in giving us the history of creation is not to answer all our questions. So right up front, Calvin says, there are going to be many things that we might want to know that Calvin is not going to answer because Scripture does not address those topics. Remember that episode that Calvin describes in the Institutes we read for today when someone asked a wise man, what was God doing before he created all things? This comes, uh, this story comes from Augustine. What was God doing before he created all things? And then Calvin quotes Augustine's answer in the story that Augustine gives to that question. He was making hell for the curious. And I noticed that Timothy George, in uh, writing about uh, that in the theology of the Reformers, that uh, Calvin uh, told this story, no doubt with a twinkle in his eye. Well, perhaps there was a twinkle in his eye, but Calvin takes this as a pretty good answer. You know, Augustine doesn't think much of the answer. Augustine wants to explore these things further. But uh, Calvin appears to view this answer as a proper answer, at least to uh, flippant questions that uh, he would not take seriously. Not sure how many of Calvin's students uh, dared to ask him a question in <coughs> class, but um, here at least he is saying what he often says, and that is, don't go beyond the evidence. Don't speculate. Don't ask questions and seek answers to questions that uh, we can't answer. That's just being flippant and irresponsible. The doctrine of creation, the history of creation as set forth in the Bible, doesn't answer all the questions, but it is there to strengthen our faith in God. That's really why we have the Genesis account of creation. Calvin puts it this way, Therefore, it was God's will that the history of creation be made manifest in order that the faith of the church, resting upon this, might, might seek no other God but him who was put forth by Moses as the maker and founder of the universe. So this is to help us know that the God of the church, our God and our Savior, is indeed the same one that made the heavens and the earth. Because God's giving us the history of creation for this purpose, we therefore do not expect that it's going to be given in scientific language. This is not a scientific treatise. It's it's an account of something that happened, creation of all things, to draw us closer to God and to enable us to know that it was our Father, our Savior, our God, our loving and kind Heavenly Father who created all things. It's not a scientific treatise, and uh, as Galvin 
tells us it does not compete with the great art of astronomy. That's not in the Institutes, but that's in his commentary on Genesis. In other words, this account in Genesis is not trying to describe the creation of the heavens and the earth in the way the astronomers would do it. Calvin is not saying the astronomers were wrong. They could be wrong, but they could be right. But uh, what he is saying is that the purpose of the account in Genesis is different from a scientific explanation of creation. Let me read to you um, a sentence or two from his commentary on Psalm 136, verse 7, which talks about the same thing. The Holy Spirit had no intention to teach astronomy. And in proposing instruction, meant to be common to the simplest and most uneducated persons, he made use by Moses and other prophets of language that none might shelter himself under the pretext of obscurity. As we will see, men sometimes very readily pretend an incapacity to understand when anything deep or recondite is submitted to their notice. Accordingly, the Holy Spirit would rather speak childishly than unintelligibly to the humble and unlearned. So, we come back to that idea that we looked at earlier. Calvin says God speaks childishly here in Genesis. And the way that we saw him say that, heard him say that earlier, was that in the scripture, God lists or talks, baby talk to us. I've already made the comment that I don't think we can jump from that idea to fallibility. It's not that childish talk is inaccurate talk. It's childish talk. It communicates on our level. It's not inaccurate. It doesn't tell us something that was not true. Uh, but neither does it uh, give us uh, an explanation in scientific language of all these things. We could take some time to uh, talk about Calvin and his view of science. I'm not going to do that at the moment. Uh, perhaps uh, at the end of the class, if there's time, I may come back to that in some more detail. Alistair McGrath, making the same point that I've just been making said Genesis 1 in Calvin and in Calvin's treatment of the doctrine of creation in Genesis 1 God accommodated himself to the abilities and horizons of a relatively simple and unsophisticated people He's talking to the Jews and at the very beginning of, of their history and um, we can even apply that to us. We know a great deal more about science today, but um, we still don't know enough to grasp a treatise that God could have written on the scientific ordering of the universe. In other words, his creation of all things put in more technical language. That would leave most of us, if not all of us, behind. So, the presentation that uh, God gives us in Genesis is a very practical one. 
and uh, we should not expect it to be what it's not. True, but simple. And Calvin says, a very personal one. There's another question that uh, Calvin deals with here, and this one he takes seriously. Why did the omnipotent God take six days to create the heavens and the earth? He thinks this is a question we could answer. God could have created everything in a moment. Why does he spread it out over six days? Perhaps you've thought about that. And, of course, the whole debate over the six days and the length of those creative days is something that is uh, uh, today. But uh, Calvin says God took six days to create, not because he needed six days to create, but he took six days to create for our benefit so that reading this account, our minds would not be overtaxed. We would not get it all at once. We could think of day one, day two, day three, and so on. Like a sympathetic teacher that spreads out the assignments so you have time to do them day by day. It doesn't require you to read uh, all of Calvin's Institutes in one day. You have a whole semester in which to do this. And Calvin says God took his time not because he needed that time, but because he wanted to do it in a way that would benefit us. And not only so that our minds would not be overtaxed, but to show his love for us in so carefully preparing the world for us. See, the climax of it all is the creation of Adam and Eve. But as we go through those six days, we see how God carefully, wonderfully prepared for the creation of man and woman. And as we read this, uh, then we're overwhelmed with the fact that uh, the triune God did this for us. You might say the six days are there for us, for our benefit, so we could get a better idea of what God did. And so that as we study through those six days, our hearts are filled with love and adoration and thanksgiving to him for what he has done for us. So the next time you read Genesis 1 and read through those six days, read it with with that in mind. We're trying to figure out what happened, of course, on each day, but just think of um, how God took his time and how God uh, prepared uh, the world uh, for us. Therefore, Calvin says, 114.2, in the very order of things, we ought diligently to contemplate God's fatherly love towards us. Okay, we've seen the uh, place and significance of the doctrine of creation and some characteristics of Calvin's treatment of the doctrine. This is all somewhat introductory, but certainly very important to Calvin's uh, presentation of this material. And then we come to the creation itself. Calvin's main interest 
is in the creation of mankind. But uh, first he describes um, the creation of angels and demons. Now he doesn't find that in the opening chapters of Genesis because that's not there. But as you continue to read the Bible, angels begin to appear. And um, the devil appears. The devil appears quite early. And uh, demons appear. And so these things, too, have to be accounted for. And uh, before Calvin returns to the creation of mankind in the opening chapters of Genesis, he deals with the creation of angels and demons. Uh, Here, Calvin's treatment, as we expect, is scriptural, practical, and non-speculative. He takes to task uh, Dionysius, the Areopagite, as he used to be known. Now he's Dionysius, the pseudo-Areopagite, who wrote, not in the, in the first century, uh, as a convert of Paul at Athens. That's why we call him now the pseudo-Areopagite. He was a fifth century writer who wrote a number of very influential books that impacted the church in the Middle Ages and to some extent all the way down to the present. But uh, one of his uh, books uh, has to do with the the angels. And uh, Dionysius uh, has a very detailed account of the angels, uh, arranging the angels in um, nine specific orders from highest to lowest, three triads of three each. Uh, Calvin refers to this book, but he calls it that foolish wisdom because Dionysius, he thinks, and certainly we think so too, uh, has gone uh, far beyond uh, what Scripture uh, tells us. Scripture does not clearly set forth uh, the cause, the manner, time, of the creation of the angels or the fall of the devils. So we dismiss speculation and stay with what we can actually know from the scripture. Let's take angels first and then demons. Calvin says we can know that angels are real spirits characterized by perception and intelligence. Uh, We're not dealing just with vague influences here. We're dealing with uh, real created beings who know, who think, who see, who understand. And we also know that um, the angels are servants servants of God. I think Calvin has a a beautiful expression uh, here. He calls the angels uh, the hands of God. The angels are the hands of God, not which work instead of him, but by which he works. That's 114.12. So it is not that God needs angels to help him in his work not think of the angels working instead of God, but the angels are instruments that God chooses through whom to work. 
as God chooses to work through us. We are the hands of God. We don't work instead of God, but God chooses to work uh, through us. These angels are servants of people. It's one of the tasks that the angels have. God uses them. God works through them uh, to serve us, to keep us, to protect us, to guard us. So, you might think of it uh, this way. Uh, The angels were created not for God's sake, but for our sake. It's not that God needed angels in order to do everything he was going to do. But, as Calvin puts it, they were created to comfort our weakness, that we may lack nothing at all that can raise up our minds to good hope or confirm them in security. Let's put it this way. God works through angels because he wishes not only to give us his protection, but to give us a sense of his protection. Now, we perhaps have have lost a a good bit of that. I have a a Catholic friend uh, to whom angels are are very real. He's always talking about angels. Almost feels the angels round about you. And I think we should should have some of that too. I don't know how real angels are to us. But they were to Calvin, and Calvin felt the reason God created the angels and the reason the Bible talks about angels is to give us that sense of God's protection. Remember the question uh, he raises, does each one of us have a guardian angel? How does he answer that? Do we have, does each one have a guardian angel? Anybody know? Yes. Yes, that's right. We we don't have one guardian angel. We have a lot of angels. It takes a lot of angels to take care of us, not just one. <laughs> so it's not just one. There are many angels that are caring for us. One fourteen seven. The care of each one of us is not the task of one angel only. So if we really get a sense of that, that um, the angels do camp round about us, then we not only know that God is caring for us, but we, we have a sense of his protection. The angels are here. Well, let's uh, think about uh, the demons next. And here again, there's a, there's a practical emphasis. Calvin says, an enemy relentlessly threatens us. So, we think about demons, we think about an enemy. Think about angels, we think about friends, God's hands, keeping us, protecting us. And we come uh, to the demons We have an enemy, God's adversary and ours. 
The devil is God's adversary and ours, according to Kelvin. Now, we won't find anything in the Institutes or anywhere else in Calvin as to um, the cause, manner, time, and so on of the fall of the devils. You have to read uh, Milton's Paradise Lost to get that information. <laughs> Two passages that are often used to um, point to the fall are Isaiah 14:12 and Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14:12 says, "How are you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn?" Uh, some people see that as a reference to the fall of an angel who is the devil. But when you turn to uh, Calvin's commentary on that, he says this refers to the king of Babylon. No reference at all to the devil there. And uh, the other reference is in Ezekiel 28, your heart became proud, so I threw you to the earth. And uh, we don't have Calvin's commentary on that uh, because uh, Calvin's uh, work ended, his life ended, as he was writing a commentary on the book of Ezekiel, but he only made it to chapter 20, verse 44. So, chapter 28, he did not get to, but um, it's almost certain that he would not have seen this either as a reference to the fall of Satan, but as a prophecy against the king of Tyre, as uh, it seems to be in that context. So, no speculation as to when this happened, how it happened, why it happened, but uh, Calvin's two chief concerns here are listed in the outline. One is very important. The other is very important too. If God created all things and God is a good God who creates all things good, then by introducing the demons, the devil and the demons, we have the introduction of an evil force in the universe. And how could it be that there is an evil force. And one big concern of Calvin throughout uh, this section is to emphasize that the evil of the devils is not of God, but of themselves. He says this over and over again. They ruin themselves. God created these spirits we could call angels, with perception and intelligence and freedom. And some of these angels created good, ruin themselves. Evil, you see, is not from nature. It's from corruption of nature. There was not an evil nature created, but a good nature was corrupted. And we'll see that true not only of the fall of the angels, but of the fall of man. Calvin never talks about an evil nature, but nature that has been corrupted by evil choice. 
So, Calvin tells us we must not ascribe to God what is utterly alien to him. That is evil. Creation of that which is evil. You can't ascribe that to God. That's alien to him because he is good. So, one important point about the demons. They ruin themselves. Second important point about the demons or the devils is that they stand under God's power. They stand under God's power. The devil can do nothing unless God wills and assents to it. The devil is not independent. The way Luther said this was, the devil is God's devil. And God uses the devil to do what he chooses to do. Calvin says it this way, the devil can do nothing unless God wills and assents to it. Now we'll see the devil doing a lot. Creating chaos in the universe and in human lives and in the church, but Calvin believes that God wills and assents to it. We'll think later about God's will and God's permission. Calvin seems to use both ideas here. He wills and assents to it, which is characteristic of Calvin, because permission can never be mere permission. God wills willingly, not unwillingly. So if the devil does something, it's God's permission, but it's God's willing permission. And we'll see, too, as we go through Calvin's treatment, we'll see some glimpses of how God uses the devil. He uses the devil to punish the wicked. He uses the devil to exercise and develop uh, the patience and fortitude and faith of the faithful. Okay, questions on any of that before we come to the creation of the world? Yes. When Calvin uses uh, creation in the image of God uh, for the angels and even uh, later for mankind, he defines that in so many different ways, it's really hard to kind of get a firm handle on what he means. But uh, I think uh, one of the best ways to understand it is given by Gerald Bray in a quotation that I wrote in the syllabus, the image extends to everything in which the nature of man surpasses that of all other species of animals. Well, that's, um, that is uh, in terms of the image of God in man, uh, the image of God in the angels, which we assume, have been created before the creation of anything else, would reflect perhaps something like intelligence, perception, in which uh, these points Calvin tells us are characteristic of the angels. Intelligent beings, beings of perception. And perhaps the key to all of the various ideas that Calvin uses in talking about the image of God is that the angels 
were created with the possibility of fellowship with God, with meeting God as person to person. Angels are persons in a certain sense. God is a person in a certain sense, and there is the potentiality of communion and fellowship, which, of course, is true also with the creation of man and woman as persons with the potentiality of fellowship. Julian? Quote Hebrews 1 2. Yeah. The Son created the world. Uh-huh. In the last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Through whom he also made the world. Well, I think that just confirms uh, Calvin's uh, conception here that uh, God the Creator in chapter 1 is the Trinity. You can speak of the Father creating, you can speak of the Son creating, you can speak of the Holy Spirit creating, but it's really the one triune God who is the creator of all things. As we come to chapter 2, God the Redeemer in Christ will have the same Trinitarian basis for that. So Calvin doesn't really see the Father as the creator alone, but the Trinity as the creator. And you can speak uh, accurately then of God the Father creating, God the Son creating, God the Holy Spirit creating. Okay, let's uh, move on to creation of the world now. Calvin's uh, basic orientation here is against dualism and against uh, pantheism. Against dualism, God created all things out of nothing. For God, there was nothing. It was not a existing force, substance. There's nothing there. So there's no dualism. And against pantheism, God is separate from his creation. The creation is not an emanation that flows out of God. When we come uh, to the actual creation of the world, need to talk about uh, Calvin's uh, view of that as he reads it in Genesis and say a word about um, the literal six days. How does Calvin view uh, the six days? We've already said that this is not scientific talk. Uh, This is baby talk. So we expect things to be, you might say, simplified, put in a way that we can understand. We know what a day is. We know what six days are. And we can understand that language. But did Calvin mean six literal days of 24 hours each? Alistair McGrath puts it this way in Christian theology, six days does not designate six periods of 24 hours in Calvin, but accommodation to designate extended period of time. It's McGrath's view that Calvin, because of his 
idea of accommodation. It's not talking about six 24-hour days. I think uh, McGrath goes beyond the evidence there. And I prefer Jack Collins' comment on Calvin at this point. Dr. Collins says in Calvin's commentary in Genesis and in the Institutes, Calvin seems to assume that these are ordinary days. Dr. Collins says Calvin seems to assume that these are ordinary days, but he does not discuss the question. And I think that's about as far as we can go on that. Calvin seems to assume that there are ordinary days. He doesn't say anything to lead us to think otherwise, but uh, he doesn't uh, discuss the question. But there is quite an interesting point here. Dr. Warfield, in his treatment of Calvin's doctrine of creation, talks about Calvin's doctrine of evolution. Warfield, as you might uh, know, was open, more open to evolution with teleology, theistic evolution, guided and directed by God uh, than some others were in his time and than most evangelical Christians are today. Warfield was not convinced that uh, evolution was correct, but uh, he was sympathetic to the idea that it could well be the way God had worked in creation, and with his sympathy to that point of view and with his uh, very great um, love for Calvin, it could be that Warfield sees in Calvin more than he should when he talks about uh, a doctrine of evolution. Let me explain what Warfield meant by that, and uh, we'll try to decide if that's right or not. Calvin does put a great deal of emphasis on the initial creation of all things out of nothing. The use of the Hebrew word bara, create, when God created uh, the heavens and the earth. And then out of that initial creation, God forms or shapes everything else that comes except for the soul of man which is another bara ex nihilo fiat so Warfield sees it this way God first makes all this Calvin calls it the seed or the seed bed and then from this creation of, what do we call it, world stuff, God forms everything else that comes into being. Here's how Warfield puts it for Calvin. All that has come into being since that initial act of creation, except the souls of men alone, has arisen as a modification of this original world stuff by means of the interaction of its intrinsic forces. Not these forces apart from God, of course. Creation of the world stuff 
and then God superintending, guiding, directing, uh, using uh, this world stuff, modifying it in various ways to create everything else or to form everything else that is formed. And Warfield sees this as a very pure evolutionary scheme. Later theologians, we don't have this in Calvin, but we do have it in later theologians, talk about uh, mediate and immediate creation. So we're trying to understand what Calvin is teaching. Uh, This is Warfield's view of Calvin here. God created all things out of nothing and then superintended through providence, we could say, the development of all that comes into existence during the six creative days by the interaction of uh, God's will and purpose on that substance which intrinsically within it had that which was necessary to support and develop all these life forms. I'm going to contrast Warfield's view here with view of another reform theologian, John Murray, who feels that Warfield has misunderstood Calvin. So we've got Warfield on Calvin in column one, and we have John Murray on Calvin in column two. Uh, Murray points out that Calvin does use creation for that initial act of creation. God created the heavens and the earth. But contrary to Warfield, Murray believes, and I think he's right, that Calvin can use creation for other steps along the way as well. Now, Reformed theologians, not John Calvin, but others have called this first creation immediate creation. And these other steps, immediate creation. Murray doesn't like those terms. He prefers to talk about the original creation and subsequent creation. So creation one, creation two would be a certain way to describe that. Uh, Murray thinks that um, these terms are confusing because here you have God creating immediately, directly. Here you have God creating indirectly, but it's still direct creation. And another difference between Warfield and Murray on Calvin, is that Warfield tends to assume that within this initial creation of world stuff were intrinsic factors that God used to develop all that comes to pass. Whereas Murray and most of the Reformed tradition would say that uh, within this immediate created world stuff, whatever that is, are not intrinsic factors that God just develops. One illustration would be the creation of the body of Adam. God makes that out of dust. So whether you're here or here, it's the same thing. But um, the Warfield view would assume that within the dust, there is that which God could use to make human body. Whereas uh, Murray and uh, others in the Reformed tradition and Murray thinks Calvin, too, would view 
that world stuff is not hitting within it the intrinsic qualities that could be put together in order to create a human body. That world stuff is stuff, but it's inactive. It is uh, intrinsically invalid. It doesn't have the potentiality that um, would be necessary uh, for uh, that kind of development. And Murray's view of Calvin is God creates all things out of nothing. And then through subsequent creative acts, uses this stuff, but it does not have within itself the potentiality to become what apparently Orpheo felt it could become through providence. After all the creation is over, then we move into providence as God preserves and keeps uh, that which he has created. Seems to me that uh, in this issue, uh, John Murray is closer to Calvin's thought than Warfield is. Uh, Warfield is a, a wonderful Calvin scholar, uh, but occasionally I think that he goes uh, beyond the evidence uh, as he does here. Yes? Both of those views of what Calvin um, That's right. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think Warfield's uh, view of uh, what Calvin believed would have been closer to Warfield's own ideas. And um, Murray's view of what Calvin believed was certainly closer to Murray's. Uh, Let me just read a sentence from Murray, which sums this up. Calvin conceived of creative factors creative factors as entering into the process by which the heavens and the earth were perfected. He's talking about creation too here. So that we're not able to characterize the process as Warfield conceived of it as a very pure evolutionary scheme. Still God's creative acts, not God's superintending and governing and producing through that which is already created through the intrinsic forces available within that created material, uh, that which actually uh, comes into being. Okay, it's a little bit complicated, but um, I think that is the way uh, to read Calvin here. Uh, Let's move on to uh, the creation of man, uh, because that's uh, the big point that Calvin is actually wanting uh, to come to. Calvin's plan is to give us a twofold knowledge of ourselves. As well as a twofold knowledge of God. Twofold knowledge of God is God is creator, God is redeemer. We know God is creator, we know God is redeemer. We know God is creator because He made all things. We know God is Redeemer because of our sin. And we know ourselves as created. Uh, That's chapter 15 of book 1 that we've read. And then we know God or we know ourselves as fallen, as sinful. And that will be the first five 
chapters of book two. So here we get ourselves as created, 115. Later we come to ourselves as fallen, 2, 1 through 5. Calvin is very concerned about this because he says philosophy confuses fallen and created man and so seeks in a ruin for a building. He says philosophy doesn't understand the difference between man is created and man is fallen. Uh, what philosophy uh, is looking at is, is man and uh, what we have in man in mankind is a ruin of what was created and philosophy seeks in the ruin for a building but will not be able to find it because philosophy seeks in fallen man uh, that which is integral and unfallen practical emphasis again in the Genesis account of the creation of man and woman, we have that which produces gratitude. As we see what God did, how God made us, the noblest and most remarkable example of God's justice, wisdom, and goodness, Calvin says in 115.1. There's a lot of praise of, of unfallen man here, how good, how fine, how beautiful, how amazing this creation was. And that produces gratitude as we see how God made us. But it also produces humility because even though Calvin says we'll come to a discussion of fallen mankind in two, book two, chapters one through five, these things have a way of coming in earlier because Calvin doesn't want to just be abstract about this. He's talking about um, the creation of man and woman, unfallen before sin, uh, but he's talking to sinful people like us. So even though he wants to make the point, this is what unfallen humanity was like. Um, he doesn't wait to make the application until book two. And one application here is that when we see what we have become, majestic building, now it's a ruin, uh, that produces humility and prevents our blaming God for our present sad ruin. See, we know what we were. We know what we are. And... Uh, we know, as we'll come in more detail to see later in book two, why we have become what we have become. So, there's no escape from inexcusability. We can't blame God. Every escape route, Calvin says, is blocked. Right, the doctrine itself, man is created, body and soul. Calvin talks about body and soul. To Calvin, the soul is the much greater part. 
And some people have thought that Calvin here is influenced too much by Platonic philosophy, that the body is evil, not good, and it's the soul that is good. Calvin never says the body is evil, but he does contrast the greatness of the soul with the body in a way that has worried some people that Calvin may be going too far here. talks about the body as the prison house of the soul, the soul being our nobler part. The body is the inferior part. But this is not an absolute contrast. God, in his glory, also shines, Calvin says, in the outer man. In other words, in the body, there is some reflection of the glory of God, some sparks of the image of God, even in the body. The image of God we'll talk about again in a moment, but um, there's some sparks of the image of God, even in the body. Uh, One way in which Calvin thinks that happens is that we walk around with uplifted faces. We don't creep around on the ground, uh, on the floor, like my cat with its head down, although my cat does look up sometimes. (laughs) But uh, we look up normally and naturally. Well, you might wonder, is that really part of the image of God? But uh, Calvin seems to want to say something good about the body, so he uh, does that. The scripture, of course, speaks to the body in words like this, house of clay, tabernacle of flesh, and so on. But uh, Paul never uses the word prison for the body. He doesn't use the idea that the body is a prison of the soul. And it seems to me that Calvin goes too far when he does that. He talks about the body being the prison of the soul. So I'm not overly concerned that Calvin has fallen into Platonic philosophy here. He's trying to be scriptural, but it could be that in some of his terms and his designations of the body, uh, he has uh, erred uh, here. The soul is an immortal yet created essence. There are two ideas uh, that Calvin wants to deal with. Uh, That is the immortality of the soul and its separateness from the body. And uh, Calvin seems to believe that if if he can prove that the soul exists separate from the body, uh, he has proven the immortality of the soul. And you remember that uh, he uses a number of arguments to support his assertion that the body is separate from the soul. talks about conscience, knowledge of God, possibility of knowledge of God, the idea of conscience that would indicate 
something separate from the body going on in the human soul, knowledge of God, possibility of knowledge of God, what he calls the nimbleness of the mind, and even dreams, because something is happening there. As we dream, it seemed to Calvin to indicate that there's a part of us which is separate from the body, which is active. The body is closed down, asleep, and another part of us is still very busy. Well, those, those arguments uh, probably lack something. I'm not sure that uh, Calvin succeeds in doing what he is trying to do. Gerald Bray says that modern medicine and psychology have demonstrated that much of what Calvin attributed to the soul belongs in reality to the sphere of flesh and blood. So I'm not sure that Calvin in these arguments succeeds in proving that the soul is separate and immortal, immortal because separate from the body. Calvin uh, does um, also try uh, to prove this from Scripture. And there is on much safer ground arguments from man's many preeminent gifts, it seems to me, uh, is not, uh, those arguments are not all that strong, but um, his arguments that the soul does exist separate from the body and is immortal, that is, it will not die, or teachings of Scripture. Yes. The uh, prison house, the soul, the body, the mm-hmm. the soul. What, is his, what are his thoughts on, uh, I mean, this may be just a speculative question, but what do you think about the new body at the, uh, at the resurrection, at that prison house as well? Or? The new body at the resurrection. I'm sure Calvin did not call that a prison house. Um don't know. I'd have to look perhaps at uh, his commentaries on passages that First Corinthians and other places where he would um, describe the resurrected body. I'll keep that in mind, but I'm not sure at the moment uh, exactly how he would uh, answer that. <laughs> okay, soul is immortal, created. And the point I think uh, here, a couple of points, the soul is not eternal. Uh, its immortality is a, a gift of God, uh, made by God. And each soul is a direct creation of God. Calvin is not a traditionist. In that creationist, traditionist debate, um, Calvin would have known about and we know about too. Traditionism teaches that... Uh, the soul is formed um, in conception as the body is formed. Uh, Calvin believed that um, each soul is a direct creation of God and rejects the traditionist uh, point of view. Each soul is a direct creation of God and a creation out of nothing, not derivative of uh, God's substance, but just as much 
uh, ex nihilo creation as the creation of the heavens and the earth um, in the beginning of Genesis 1. Okay, a couple of uh, things went awry with the outline here, so move down to point two on the next page. It uh, just repeated several statements here. We'll talk about uh, man created in the image of God, uh, which is uh, the last point uh, that we have before us today. What is the image of God? That's what we need to ask now. Uh, Man is created body and soul. We've talked about that. Man is created in the image of God. And then man is created with two faculties, understanding and will. So those are the main ideas that Calvin uh, discusses here. Where is the image of God uh, to be found in mankind? Primarily in man's soul, but even in man's body, there are some sparks of God's image. A little hard to know exactly how to understand that. What would be the image of God in these Sparks, the uplifted face, and so on. That seems somewhat speculative to me uh, that Calvin is trying to find some something in the in the body that would uh, be described as the image of God. I think if Gerald Bray is, is right, though, and Calvin defines image of God in a lot of different ways, Gerald Bray says the image extends to everything in which the nature of man surpasses that of other species of animals. And you may be able to argue that the human body, we surpass other animals, not that we're the same as animals. We are We're not animals in the sense that we have souls, but even so, it's a little, little problematic uh, to think about that. I mean, do we really surpass all the animals in our physical being? Well, I don't know. Yes, when you watch the Olympics, you're pretty impressed with the ability of the human body. But I'm not sure that human beings normally are more graceful, say, in our movements than some of the animals are. So, Calvin doesn't spend much time on that, and we won't spend much time on it either, uh, because uh, primarily... Uh, the image of God is to be found uh, in the soul. Uh, Let me just uh, read to you some of the ways Calvin attempts to say what this is. It's the integrity with which Adam was endowed. The uprightness, the integrity. That's 115.3. Then he comes back to it in 115.4 say basically the same thing, but he spells it out in more detail. It's the light of the mind, 
the uprightness of the heart, the soundness of all the parts. And then in 115.4, he has another go at it. It's true knowledge, it's righteousness, and it's holiness. And then again in 115.4, he says, finally, it's an inner good of the soul. So somewhere in all of that, uh, Calvin finds the image of God. Once again, Bray's comment was, the image extends to everything in which the nature of man surpasses that of all other species of animals. That may be the best way to sum up all of Calvin's thinking here. Or another way that he approaches this is to say that the image of God is that which was lost, but then reclaimed, um, lost in Adam, but reclaimed in Christ. And then finally, man is created uh, with uh, two faculties. It's important to grasp this here because Calvin will work with this later on. There are different ways of uh, understanding uh, the human being, our faculties. But uh, Calvin prefers um, a simple approach, he says. The philosophers are much more complicated at this point. And Calvin says uh, just two parts. One is understanding and one is will. Understanding is the leader and governor of the soul. And will is the follower. Now, we won't debate uh, that at the moment as to whether that's right or not, because we'll have to come to that later. But basically, Calvin says this is how mankind works. Uh, the will follows the understanding. Understanding comes first. We understand something, and then we act on it. Let me just uh, close in the last couple of minutes by making two points. 115.8, Calvin says, we're not yet ready to raise the question of God's secret predestination. There's one of those times when he says, could talk about God's election, God's predestination here. Uh, the point, of course, is Adam and Eve are made good. They fall into sin. Is that God's purpose? Is that God's will? They were not made evil, but they became evil because of their own misuse of their understanding and their will. And Calvin hints, at least, that this would be a place where you could ask that question. But he says we're not... We're not yet ready to raise that question. Our present concern is what man's nature was like. What we really are trying to do here is just to see how God made us. Don't talk about predestination yet. We haven't even come to the fall yet. This is how God made us. And it's important for us to see that because of the fact that it produces in us gratitude, produces in us humility, closes off all escape routes so that we are inexcusable. We can't say, 
well, God made me this this way, weak, sinful, fallible. We can't use that argument. Second point in closing. Calvin does raise this question. Why did God not make a man who either could not or would not sin at all? Why did God make us the way he made us with the possibility of sinning, the possibility of loving and serving him, but also the possibility of not loving and serving him? Why did God not make a man who either could not or would not sin at all? And Calvin's answer here is quite different from the answer that's, that's normally uh, given. Calvin's answer is, such a nature would indeed have been more excellent. So in his view, strangely, it seems to me, he's saying God could have done it another way and made a a more excellent creature uh, than he uh, made. Uh, The answer to that question that's given by Francis Schaeffer C.S. Lewis, almost everybody else that I can think of, is that uh, God made us the way that he made us uh, because it goes beyond the creation of the animals. If he had made us in a way that we could not have sinned, neither could we have freely and voluntarily loved him. So, that answer is a usual one, but Calvin doesn't go that way. He lacks uh, that kind of uh, theodicy. God simply chose to do it this way, and uh, he could have done it some other way, but he chose to do it this way, and mankind fell. And we are responsible for our fall. You might say, well, how am I responsible for what Adam and Eve did? That's a later question that he'll get to. But uh, we're responsible. We're inexcusable. And from it all, uh, God will get glory. That's as far as Calvin is willing to go. All right. All right. The triune God made all things, but we don't stop there. Calvin is not a a deist. Uh, The triune God who made all things is very intimately associated with all his creation in his works of providence. Uh, That's what we'll look at uh, next. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.